Welcome to This Sustainable Life Untethered, the place where we explore mind, body and nature and the things that hold you back from enjoying them. I am your host and adventure partner, Alison, and I'm so excited to go and explore with you. Hello, friends, and welcome to This Sustainable Life Untethered. And I am delighted to introduce today's episode, which is all about plastic and our complicated relationship with this helpful, harmful, and everlasting material. It doesn't matter whether you know very little about plastic or you already know a lot, because our amazing guest, the writer, author and poet Alison Cobb, will help you to see your plastic possessions in a new light. I really hope you enjoy this episode. I am delighted to welcome Alison Cobb all the way from Oregon, United States. Um, Alison is an environmental writer, poet and author. And today we're going to be talking about her latest book, Plastic and Autobiography. So welcome, Alison. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Alison. So I have to say that when I first received a copy of the book and I saw it was almost 300 pages long, my first thought was, oh my goodness, I did not know there was that much to say about plastic. And then my second thought was, oh my goodness, I don't know if what there is to say about plastic is all interesting. <laughs> what have I let myself in for? But actually, you know, I, I have read the book and I really, really enjoyed it. It's one of the most interesting, genuinely interesting books I've read. And I found it was uh, at some points like a real page turner, which I think is quite um Un unusual for a non-fiction book you know I was kind of rushing through trying to get to the next bit because there was so much story so much narrative so I just want to say first of all thank you for writing such an interesting book which makes my job uh, as a podcast host so much more fun and interesting um, and for those I guess who haven't read the book please could you give a bit of a summary as to as to what the book is and, and who you wrote it for Sure. Well, Allison, thank you for those kind words about the book. I'm so pleased to know that it was a page turner at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that was one of my goals for sure. So I got the idea to write the book because um, I have worked for my whole career as an environmental writer. I work for an environmental nonprofit um, based here in the U.S. called Environmental Defense Fund. And I was just seeing all of this news about plastic waste coming across my screen. and I wanted to write about these big planetary shifts that we're all experiencing right now, climate change, pollution. And um, when I started the book 10 years ago, to me, plastic felt like a much more concrete manifestation of these changes than a big abstract thing like climate change. Now, I think today we're all experiencing pretty concrete effects of climate change. Uh, but, but then I thought, we all really have an intimate daily relationship with plastic. And I think at least for me, plastic is so everywhere and takes so many different forms that a lot of times we don't even really see it. And so I wanted to just explore plastic in my own life, which is why I called it an autobiography and just find as many links as I could between my life and plastic that were interesting and just as you said kind of write stories about that and weave them together as a way of bringing myself into the topic and, and other people as well. 
Yeah. And I think, yeah, you did it so well. And the reason why like, I do love it is it doesn't feel kind of preachy at all. And it's, it feels like um, you take something that has become invisible, as you've said, and it's like you just basically pull the thread on it and keep unraveling it and seeing where that goes. What were you thinking about when you were writing it? I was thinking really about folks like us who are feeling concerned about the state of our world and have some awareness about what's happening and at least for me maybe feeling a little overwhelmed by it all and you know I have the experience of just um, taking in so much news and information every day and it can start to feel a little bit numbing or you know it's it's kind of easy to tune it out and so I wanted a way for people to be able to get into this issue that again isn't you know, so daunting um, that it just sort of in a personal way through stories and, um, you know, just as a way of maybe all of us together thinking about how we could do things differently and imagine new possibilities. I guess this might sound like a bit of a silly question, but for a large, large part of my life, I didn't even know how plastic was made or, or manufactured. So some of my listeners might also be feeling the same way. So can you give a bit of a, a brief summary as to how plastic is made, where it comes from and how it gets manufactured? Sure, I'd be happy to. I, I must say I didn't give it a lot of thought myself either <laughs> until I got into it. And so plastic all comes from fossil fuels oil, gas, and coal, mostly gas, so the same fossil fuels that are changing our climate and right now are powering our cars. And what happens is there are plastic refining plants that take those fossil fuels and usually heat them up to very high temperatures and then press them down with a bunch of pressure, which they measure in atmospheres. And it's like thousands of Earth atmospheres is how heavy the pressure is. And that breaks those molecules apart and lets them turn those molecules into new molecules that are go together in long chains, which is why plastics are called polymers, They're, which just means many. There's a, a linked chain of molecules that are really strongly fused together in a laboratory and very hard to break apart. That's what helps make plastic have all its great properties. It's flexible, it's really durable, it can be very lightweight and also cause the huge problems of plastics because there is essentially no natural beings that know how to break those molecules apart by little critters eating them. And that's why plastic lasts forever because there's nothing that can break it down in the environment. And so what happens is it just breaks into smaller and smaller pieces, but at the molecular level, it actually never goes away. Um, lasts essentially forever. It's, it's crazy, isn't it? When you, when you think about man can make something and using the power of chemistry, essentially create this incredible useful thing but also make a big problem which perhaps I don't know if we thought about it at the time of it being made um, but certainly you know we're seeing the effects of the problem now and I think as well there's like a misconception around um, recycling I know that I, I as, my, as a citizen you know I do my bit I put my recycling out and I just didn't think about 
where that recycling goes, what happens to it. And the, the statistics are, there's actually a very small proportion that actually gets recycled and it's not something that you can necessarily recycle indefinitely. So at some point the plastic degrades so much, it just, you just have to throw it away and you know cause this environmental problem. And for me, it's been like a period of learning and I almost feel like an awakening of consciousness where you start to see the things that you've always seen in your life, but in a slightly different way, like kind of like waking up from the matrix and <laughs> being like, well, hang on a second. I didn't even notice that when I buy my apples, they're wrapped in plastic and what I think about this and where it goes. So did you have like a similar period of this awakening of consciousness you said you've been writing the book for for 10 years do you remember the time or the process by which you kind of started becoming more aware of of the impact that we're having yes well Alison you characterized it all so well I think and um, I feel like over the 10 years in which I wrote off and on you know I I wanted to be having fun while I was writing this book because if I'm not having fun, I don't think that readers can be enjoying themselves when they're reading it. And there, I came to a point actually where I, you know, as part of writing the book, I had developed a practice of picking up all the plastic that I found on my daily dog walk here in Portland, Oregon and collecting it and taking photographs of it. And I was just seeing plastic everywhere. And I started to get really sort of down and depressed about it. So I actually stopped writing the book for a while. I wrote a book of poetry. And then I came back to this book when I was ready to re-engage. So I did need to uh, take a break from the topic. But along the way, there were several awakenings. And one that was a very big one for me um, that's actually becoming more and more crystallized is that, you know, you said when people started making plastic, maybe they didn't know that, you know, this would be a consequence. And certainly I'm sure no one foresaw a globe full of plastic waste everywhere scientists look. You know, the research is finding now that we essentially have like a microplastic fallout all over the planet, um, invisible plastic particles in the air that we are most likely at this moment breathing and eating in our food. And I am sure no one foresaw that, but the industry after World War II, which is when plastic production really started to take off, there was a lot of new technology, plastic-based technology developed during World War II. And when the war ended, there needed to be an outlet for all of that production. And the industry very deliberately set about um, convincing people to throw plastic away because they recognized early on that if you manufacture an item that essentially lasts forever, you're going to have a profit problem at some point. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of a famous industry quote where in the 50s, a person from the industry in the US said that the future of plastics is in the trash can. And wow. people coming out of the depression and out of the war, of course, were accustomed to conserving and saving. And so they had to be convinced to, they were keeping their plastic cups and bowls. They had to be convinced that they were cheap disposable items. And there were, there were advertising campaigns around that. And since then, there has really been a very deliberate and concerted strategy by packaging manufacturers, by the end producers like Coca-Cola who, you know, use, rely on plastic bottles 
to really shift attention about plastic waste away from the producers of the waste and onto people like you and I. So if you feel bad about your plastic waste, the industry is glad for that. Um, here in the US, way back in the 1950s, people started getting concerned about single use items on the roadways. And um, there was a, in the US state of Vermont, there was a law actually banning single use items in the 1950s, which seems to us so progressive now. The industry mm -hmm. swept right in. And what they did is they started here in the US a campaign called Keep America Beautiful that for people who grew up in the US um, and who are about my age, which is 50, there's a very iconic ad of a crying Indian um, and looking at plastic waste. And the tagline of the ad is people start pollution, people can stop it. And the industry paid for that campaign, which is, has not been well known because the focus was on what we as individuals do. And then industry has also promoted the idea that we can recycle our plastics and everything's fine. You just put it in the bin and industry doesn't pay for that. We pay for it with our tax dollars. They don't take any responsibility for that, but we get a, a comforting message that it's all being reused and it's all okay as long as we're doing our part in recycling. And, and as you said, in fact, only about 10% of plastic gets recycled. So that was a big awakening moment for me that, that plastic waste is not this unintended consequence of this miracle new technology. It really was kind of designed in to the system from the beginning. Is that the reason why we kind of just are so unquestioning? How comes we're not going around kind of like a child, you know, just questioning where, where does this come from? Where is it going? And we just take things for, for granted. I do think that for the whole system, for our whole global capitalist system to function well, um, it's, it's better. And, you know, companies would prefer us not to, to think too much about where our things come from um, because you know, particularly as our economies have become increasingly global since the 90s, there have been a lots of labor and, you know, production standards in countries like China and now increasingly other countries in Asia that I think we might all feel uncomfortable with if we asked a lot of questions. And I also think that um, industry writ large, not just the plastic industry, has done a good job of avoiding something that environmentalists call extended producer responsibility, which is basically a very common sense idea. And that is that the industry should be responsible for the pollution and waste it generates and cleaning that up. And, and the industry um, all over the world has done a good job of avoiding that. And, it's, and I do think it's even, it's hard for me. I think it's hard for us to imagine because of the way our economies work that very common sense idea. And as you know, um, one of the main threads in the book tried to prove that point by taking a big car part, plastic car part that showed up in my front yard one day, a very ugly four foot long black plastic fender liner that I discovered in the book comes from a Honda Odyssey minivan. I don't know how many of those turn up in the UK, but they're very popular here. In the I'm gonna US. be on the lookout now. <laughs> <laughs> minivans are popular in the US and all of them are made, actually all the Honda Odyssey minivans in the world are made in, in 
the state of Alabama here in the US. So one of the journeys of the book that actually opens and closes the book is a trip across the country to that Honda Odyssey plant, which builds bills itself as a zero waste plant. So they try to reuse and recycle everything on site. Um, fortunately, my at the time eight-year-old daughter was willing to be the ambassador for that plastic car part and she brought it into the factory and asked them if they would take it back, if they would take responsibility for it. And of course that was a ridiculous idea that someone would bring the clean offices of the Honda plant, this piece of plastic garbage and ask them to take it. And to me, a very, you know, the very iconic moment that closes the book is the representative of Honda handing this piece of plastic back to my daughter and saying, you know, we can't take that here, that's yours, as this symbol of the plastic waste that we're handing to future generations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the future generations is in, this is now your mess to clean up. And I guess until governments legislate that they have to take more responsibility they'll just keep following where the money is you mentioned the plastic car part and I found it really interesting in the book because it was something that you uh you had very closely to you said you kept it on your desk and then at some point you put it by your bedside and that you would (laughs) trip over it almost every night as you went to bed um, what what was the reason behind keeping it so like visible and in your life and you know a pain as well you're physically tripping over it mm-hmm. it's actually still here with me it's right by my desk Is it? <laughs> I still have it I suppose I will forever <laughs> um I wanted to really try an experiment of treating a piece of garbage what's what you know our society would see as a piece of garbage as the actually very precious thing that it is and and long-lasting thing that it is because this piece of plastic was made from a non-renewable resource natural gas from under the earth that had to be mined and piped and then created in a factory that that emitted a lot of climate pollution as well as health harming pollution. So the lives of people affected all along the way and then built in a factory somewhere and then put into a car, driven around, torn off the car somehow, ended up in my life and and will last forever. So I just wanted to do this experiment of caretaking, Mm -hmm. kind of what people see as a piece of garbage for all the inherent value in it that has people's lives and labor in it and and the, the, this non-renewable resource. Um, so I guess the experiment continues <laughs> since it's still with me. <laughs> There's a really nice phrase that you use in the book um, where you talk about like plastic and how it transmutes death into eternal life. And I thought that was really beautiful because when you think of oil or gas or whatever, you don't really think of it as all those animals that lived and then died so many years ago and formed this really helpful thing for us to be honest and yeah now we have just kind of violated that I guess in some way in some Mm -hmm. handy ways but you also mentioned that a plastic is your uh, or you think that it might be your white whale 
And again, I, I thought that was a really interesting comment to kind of reflect about yourself and um, the, the definition of white whale, which I think you think you provide in the book, but for, for the listeners, it's something that someone pursues obsessively and with little chance of success. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> is, is there just like a curiosity there? Is that is that the thing that's really driving you? Like... You know, well, first, I just want to say quickly that I, I so appreciate, Alison, that you talked about plastic as being helpful and a useful thing, because I definitely don't feel like there should be no plastic. Uh, plastic is a very helpful technology. It, you know, it saves lives, it makes airplanes lighter and cars stronger. And so it also reduces pollution. I think really, you know, again, a very common sense way we could focus if we weren't in a system driven overwhelmingly by profit is the really utter nonsensical issue of, of creating single-use disposable items out of material that lasts forever. I mean, any industrial designer would say that is a ridiculous proposition, right? So <laughs> that only serves industry profits. Um, so anyway, that is an aside. But in, in terms of the, the white whale and the you know, obsession that sort of fails. Um, I think I took that on in relationship to the car part in particular, because I sort of knew that the Honda Odyssey plant was not going to be willing to take back our piece of garbage. That was, of course, a little bit of a performance to prove a point. And yet, this book has totally shaped my life over 10 years. My poor family had to endure a summer vacation that involved visiting plastic plants along the U.S. Gulf Coast. And during July, and if you know anything about the US Gulf Coast in July, which I really actually didn't, it's at least 100 degrees and humid every day. Oh my God. <laughs> so, you know, so many people in my life have been pulled into this orbit with me and dwelling with this issue and this plastic. So it is a bit of a uh, sort of ongoing never and you know I don't think there will necessarily be a successful outcome for this piece of plastic so in a way the failure is built in but that's also part of the experience to share and I will tell you I in a way it was to help me think about not not thoughtlessly throwing plastic away as as I continue to do all the time because we live in this system but it was just a way of trying to have an ongoing meditation with our circumstance. I love that idea, an ongoing meditation. That's that's really beautiful. Um, so obviously you are a poet and um, your use of language and poetry throughout the book was something that was really enjoyable. And um, with regards to the single use plastic, you, you use the phrase um, consume and dispose violence. And I think that's a really interesting choice of words. What, what, what do you think about how we use words and how we should perhaps be using them um, to better help people with this ongoing meditation? Yes, thank you for asking that. Um, I do, I'm a writer, so I'm biased, but I do think that words have a lot of power to shape our reality. And, you know, one piece of evidence to the contrary is that ad campaign that was here in the US that shaped my childhood and many others with the tagline, people start pollution, people can stop pollution, that really framed this as an individual problem. And I think our language and we need new language and new imaginations for really what's a new reality. 
as a whole global society with climate change, with global plastic pollution, we're really facing new realities. And, you know, pandemics are part of that because of loss of wildlife habitat and increased interaction with wildlife. Um, it's all part of, a same, of, of the same big change that we're undergoing. And, and, and we really need a new imagination for how we can dwell, um, not just sustainably on the planet, but I think abundantly on the planet. You know, I like to go beyond the idea of, of sustaining and, and, and to abundance. And um, that's gonna take whole new paradigms. And I feel like language is, is a way of um, imagining that new place that we might all go together, I hope. Yeah, I think that's really nice actually, because obviously this podcast is called The Sustainable Life. And uh, just thinking then, I might rebrand to this abundant life. <laughs> I think it- But you have untethered in there, which opens up all kinds of additional yeah, possibilities. There's so much freedom going on. And yeah, I, I think it is really interesting and, and how we, we use language and how we kind of minimize our actions by the use of language. And if we uh, like, so for example, you know, if you go to Starbucks and order a coffee, the, the way that you've talked about the consume and dispose violence, that can almost be an act of aggression, ordering a coffee and a takeaway cup. And I don't know if that's the most um, effective way, I guess, to, to connect with people and that uh, inspiration of abundance, but it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely something to meditate on. Um, and you also talk about like you have a lot of other emotional stories in the book. Was there one thing that was really emotional and really got you when you were writing? Yes. Uh, well, um, the book is an autobiography. So it, as you know, it ranges very far, <laughs> seemingly far away from plastic, because one thing I wanted to do was connect all the threads. Since we are all complex people living complex lives with many issues and happenings. And one thing that happened during the book is that my mother died. Um, and that experience of my mother dying for me was surprising in some ways because of course I had a lot of grief about it, but there also was this kind of surprising experience of joy um, that I felt in some ways closer to her than I had in many years in the weeks before her death and then even after. Um, and that to me was tied with my experience of visiting communities along the Gulf Coast of the US who are living in the shadow of these giant petrochemical plants, some of the biggest plastic plants on the planet and struggling every day with that pollution under really life and death circumstances. Um, and what I learned from the experts and leaders in those communities was also joy, um, that they um, find resilience in, in celebrating beauty and, and happiness in their lives against, against a lot of difficult odds. And I, I don't wanna paint it as an overly rosy picture. I don't wanna sort of celebrate people for being happy even as they're suffering because no one should have to live in those circumstances. But I did find a lot of, and continue to find because I continue to work with these communities, a lot of wisdom and that resilience. And I think as a 
privileged person who is an environmentalist by trade, um, who does not face the same life and death circumstances, I find it almost easy to feel despair sometimes. Um, and for these communities, despair is a luxury they can't afford. Um, and so finding joy and experiencing joy as a, as a means of resilience as we all work toward solving some of these big challenges was a, was a huge emotional awakening for me and when I'm still exploring and learning about. So that was just a kind of delightful surprise of the book and one I, ho I hope is buoying for other people in a topic that can be a little bit hard. Yeah, I think it can be easy, can't it, for, for the reader to just, like you say, like feel that pity, like, oh, how sad they live in Cancer Alley and they attend more funerals than they do weddings. And but but when you paint that other that other picture of that resilience and that hope, you kind of have to be a bit pulled out of, of the wallowing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I found really emotive in the book that I thought you described so beautifully was the story of the, the shed bird. So I think a lot of people have probably seen pictures of animals where they have plastic caught around their face or the turtle with the straw up the nose. But there was something about the description of the, the shed bird and the albatross that that really got to me. Can you explain a little bit about about that for the listeners? Sure, I'd be happy to. That that image actually was one of the main original uh, drives behind writing the book. Um, so albatross chicks are fed by their parents, who fly across the ocean and pick up um, flying squid eggs or flying fish eggs and squid and all kinds of things. Um, that they bring back and feed to their babies. And now increasingly plastic bits are entangled with all that. And so the babies get full of plastic that they can't digest or pass. And then basically they starve and they die. And there's a photographer called Chris Jordan who's taken, people may have seen a beautiful and haunting series of photographs of these decaying albatross bodies with the plastic intact inside of them. Um, the bird in the book was actually one of the very first of those pictures. It was taken by a different photographer named Susan Middleton. And for me, what made that story so powerful is that Susan was spending time in the Northwest Hawaiian Islands, which are a remote island chain north of um, Hawaii, um, taking photographs of animals and got to know this bird that they named Shedbird because it hung out by their photography shed. And so this bird then also became an individual with a personality. It was a bird that was an adolescent stage, which is very awkward. They have these weird feathers that stick out as they're shedding baby fluff and getting real feathers. And, they, and they're not afraid of humans because they've never had human predators. So they sort of are very curious. And it had a lot of personality. And it was testing these beautiful albatross wings getting ready to fly. And then it died. Um, and Susan was very emotionally overcome by this. And she spent a few hours literally pulling out every piece of plastic inside the bird. There was, I think, 500 and all when she was done um, from tiny, tiny microplastics to things you would recognize like a toy top and a lighter. Um, and so I think it was that bird's individuality that really drew me to it and, and maybe you too made it very real. Yeah, that, that relationship that they had where they were watching it, absolutely. 
And I'm curious, so you mentioned a bit about, you know, you said you still use plastic because we, we live in the world. And I guess I'm reflecting on, you know, having, having read your book and really <laughs> starting my own meditation with plastic and then thinking about how my behavior is in, in response to that meditation. I feel like I can, I can feel all those feelings. I can feel the sadness, the despair, the, the resilience, the joy. And then, you know, if I'm having a bad day at work, I can go to the supermarket and buy like some candy and the single use plastic and eat that. And then just be like, Oh, you know, mm. and is, is that something that you, that you do? What, what's your relationship, your personal relationship with single use plastic? I am nodding at you vigorously because I relate to everything that you have just said. Sometimes people get very nervous when they found out I've written a book about plastic and they're around me and they sort of like put their water bottle away or try to, you know, and I always say, I am a person who loves the Ziploc bag. Don't worry. Um, I definitely try to do what I can to reduce my plastic use. Um, I try to avoid, you know, bring my own bags, all those things, try to avoid things that are in single use containers. Um, and then I don't beat myself up because I recognize, I think that idea that we are all in this system and we can, in a way, waste or lose energy feeling guilty um, where we could take that energy and turn it back out and say, and, and hold producers, do the work of holding producers responsible um, to make the big systemic change that we really need. So I think we really need both. And actually my partner and I have a little conflict about this because my partner is much more about, we have to stop using all plastics as much more of that partisan. And I'm much more about, we need to call our uh, U.S. Congress people because, in fact, there's a bill here in the U.S. that would indeed hold hold producers responsible. It would do that paradigm shift. Um, it would hold producers responsible for their plastic waste. They would have to pay for the recycling and cleanup. Um, and it would also ban some single-use plastics. That bill in the U.S. Congress has gone nowhere. The industry held a press conference saying it should be dead on arrival before it was even introduced. Of course, they hate this idea uh -huh. uh, because it's a, such a big change. Uh, but I, so I, I sort of dwell in the middle, right? I, don't, I do everything that I can and I wanna put my energy on the big system changes that are really gonna alter the whole thing. Mm. I have to say, I'm not sure. Um, I know there are a number of targets, I think, for kind of supermarkets in the UK. But at the moment, it feels like the only thing that is um, alive in the collective consciousness is we have a like a plastic bag tax. So it's like 5p if you want to, um, if you forget to bring your bag with you. And it seems like it's just for the for the scale of the problem that it causes it's it's absolutely a drop in the ocean you know in comparison and i guess that might contribute to people thinking that it's not such a problem or not their problem so you mentioned about um you know the solution with the extended producer responsibility and us as consumers i guess being more aware and and trying to um 
live abundantly but in this kind of middle middle bit where we we don't beat ourselves up for for using single use plastic and what would you like um people to take away from this conversation if they just took away one thing mm, yes well i think it would be that I, I think it would be don't lose hope um i think our collective collectively we have a lot of power as individuals um there's that great Margaret Mead quote about um, never doubt that an individual can change the world. And indeed, it, it's the only thing that ever has. Um, and so I think that we can make change. You know, there have been huge societal shifts in the past that maybe seemed unimaginable to the people perhaps living in the feudal system mm -hmm. <laughs> in England, you know. Um, so we can make change. And, and I, I really believe that we can if, if we can focus our energies in the right way. And um, that just means getting energized and looking for the root causes and focusing there. And there is a what I am so encouraged by is there's lots of attention and talk about plastic happening right now. There's just a new report out um, from an Australian group identifying the 20 companies responsible for 55% of the world's single-use plastic waste. So that's so helpful in focusing attention. And I think more and more of that, the top two, by the way, are ExxonMobil and Dow Chemical. Right. Um, and then there are Chinese state-owned companies and, and that's many others. Um, so I think focusing attention that way, there's, you know, momentum is growing, there are calls for global treaties. I think in 20 years, people will look back at our single use plastic era and be sort of appalled by it because things will be really different. Mm. That's great that we could take a bit of that kind of 80-20 approach. And if we could um, start to measure or even, you know, have companies compete, how much plastic use can they reduce by rather than how much profit can they make, how much can they produce and sort of turn it on its head. That would yeah. be really exciting. Brilliant. <laughs> I love that quote. Are there any other, as, as a writer and a poet, of course, are there any other quotes that you live by? Oh, well, there's a quote that um, opens the book that I kind of informed the whole writing of the book for me. And it says, I'm just going to pull the book out because I have it right here. It's from a, actually a physicist um, based here in the US that says, knowing does not come from standing at a distance and representing, but rather from a direct material engagement with the world. And I love that because I think as a writer, you know, I can have a tendency to spend my life behind the screen pounding out the words. Um, and the adventure of this book was really about being entangled with my materials, talking with communities, having this plastic part in my life, traveling with it, and really just feeling and being in, you know, as you know from the book, I traveled to Hawaii to a junk beach there and where plastic washes up. And so I think just, you know, sort of living and, and embodying knowledge rather than just having intellectual knowledge is a beautiful way of coming to understand the world and also building such life-giving relationships um, that keep me sustained. Yeah, I really enjoyed your, you, you 
deep dived into so many areas to the point where you would then try and um, speak to the people who, you know, the descendants of the the key uh, people that you mentioned in the book. And I remember there was one bit where you were looking at um, photograph of Stan Ulam, the inventor of the atomic bomb, and, and you just wanted to see what was behind his eyes. And I just thought like that real deep engagement is so, so interesting as a reader. So in the second part of the podcast, um, I take a little bit of a more sort of general conversation about your um, relationship with the the environment more generally. I know, obviously, you've written quite a great deal about your relationship with the environment, and it's clearly something that you care about. But when you think about, you know, the environment and the natural world, what does it mean to you? Are there sort of any images or stories that that stick in your mind and, and motivate you to act? Hmm, that's such a great question. Well, I was very lucky to grow up in the U.S. state of New Mexico um, in the mountains. I grew up at 7,500 feet. I don't know what that is in metric. Sorry, I should, but I don't. It's high. <laughs> I don't know either. Tall, tall mountains. <laughs> um, so I grew up in a beautiful, small mountain town in New Mexico and had the luxury of, of playing and being outdoors in that environment. And I think that that instilled in me a really deep sense of belonging um, in that kind of world. At the same time, it was the town that designed and built the atomic and thermonuclear bombs. My father is a nuclear physicist. And it's essentially a, a colonial town, really a white, largely white, highly educated scientific nuclear laboratory plopped down in the middle of the New Mexico desert, surrounded by a majority indigenous and Hispanic population. And so I also grew up with a deep and weighty sense of history <laughs> because of where I was and a sense of not belonging, a sense of being an interloper in the place where I was born. And that full complexity of all of that, I think I've sort of always carried with me. And to me, that is, a, is the full complexity of how we relate with natural systems. We are at once a part of them and, and fundamentally a force altering them. And how can we reconcile that relationship for ourselves um, I think has been kind of a question of my life and one that I want to do with lots of grace and forgiveness and um, untethered room to enjoy at the same time that I carry that sense of responsibility too. So I that was a bit of an intellectual answer, but. Um. So is it that there's like this kind of curiosity, this ongoing curiosity and exploration about yourself and the environment and how the two link together and interact and and that that's the thing that the environment means to you that your it's your place in the environment is that am I hearing you right I think that's right I think that's a really good way to put it Allison I think growing up in the, that circumstance for me environment means not only what we call the natural world but also human history and all of the forces that have sort of shaped where we, um, how we have arrived at today. And the thing that I love that might be evident from the book and that brings me a lot of joy is just kind of being an investigator 
and looking around at all of, trying to look at all of those forces and understand them um, in order to make some meaning out of them for myself and, and hopefully for other people too. Yeah, I, I, that definitely comes across <laughs> as a curious <laughs> investigator. So I invite you completely at your option, Alison, to come up with something that you can do to act on that kind of feeling of curiosity, that investigation and, and you know, your relationship with the environment as it changes and its relationship with you. And um, it doesn't have to be the thing that you think you should do. It doesn't have to be, you know, something where you think you're going to fix everything overnight, um, but something that's kind of really meaningful for you, I guess. And it can be, it can be big, it can be small, it can be a one-off, it can be over a period of time, but just something to kind of act on and, and continue that exploration that perhaps you are not quite doing but might be thinking of or have thought of doing um so is there anything that comes to mind yes there is and i love the way that you framed this um challenge as a way of continuing my investigations because i think it fits very well with that so i as primarily a writer, um, do almost nothing with my hands besides type on a computer. I'm not a very handy person. Um, and I think as a citizen of a global capitalist culture, when I think that I need something or something breaks, my very first instinct is to buy something um, to solve my problem um, or to fill a need. Mm, and so... <laughs> So, and I think that's, you know, that may be common and I feel not equipped to do much else. So I'm very reliant on buying things. And so my challenge to myself over the next, maybe we'll say two months so we could see, so I could see how I do is every time I feel like I need to buy something, I want to pause and ask myself, is there another way that I could fill this need? Maybe I could fix it. Maybe I could use something else. Maybe I could borrow something. And just to exercise that muscle of thinking about alternatives. My partner is a very handy person and I'm often amazed at the ways that they can jury rig something so that it works or <laughs> find a reuse. And so I'm inspired to try that myself. I love that idea. So, so sorry, so just to clarify, is it when like something breaks or something is not quite, um, when you say every time you feel like you want to buy something, just to clarify a bit more of what that something is? Mm -hmm. You know, I think that I will do it anytime I feel like I want to buy something. And I think the key will be not not that I won't buy something, maybe I will end up buying something, but you know what I think the key is, is the pause. Mm -hmm. Every time I think I wanna buy something, maybe I'll just pause and consider if I really need to. And then I'll have an adventure and an investigation about what the solution is. Maybe it will be buying something, but I don't know if this happened with you, but in the pandemic, when for so long we couldn't go out and eat, I got, and I wanted to minimize shopping, I got much more inventive about the things in my pantry and realized I really don't need to go out and buy food all the times that I think I do or eat out and really enjoyed um, 
finding that those solutions at home. And so that's just a little example of maybe the kinds of possibilities I might find if I just every time I want to buy something, just give a little pause. Yes, I completely understand and agree. So I'm really trying to like minimize my own food waste at the moment. And one of the things that I've found really helpful is moving from what used to be a weekly shop to the supermarket. And it would kind of be regardless of how much is left in the fridge or the cupboards, but I'd just go anyway, almost out of habit. And, and now I've been, I think, almost two weeks without a shop and I'm just, I'm getting down to the last bits and I'm like, oh, I'm going to have a bit of half a cauliflower and a pepper and some leftover avocado. And it, it's, it's really weird because it's not like, um, <laughs> like a meal dinner that a chef might, you know, Gordon Ramsay or whatever you might see in his cookbook. But actually, when you take away the constraint of having a meal or having a recipe and just playing with what you have, it's, I found it really fun. And then because I'm an absolute foodie, I take photos of everything and like post it on Instagram. Oh, that's inspiring to me. Yes. And it turns out to be delicious and nourishing and you feel really proud of yourself, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. So that's so cool. So um, then just to kind of uh, put it into a smart goal, just to make sure I understand. So every time you're thinking about buying something, so literally like anything, getting the card out, you're just going to pause and reflect and uh, decide, I guess, do you need to buy it? Do you want to buy it? And you can go ahead and buy it. But just that moment of reflection is the thing that you're looking for. And yeah. And is there another solution besides buying something? Mm, yeah. Um, oh, I always remember hearing the quote when it comes to food, because I'm definitely like an emotional eater. And again, that's something I've been trying to uh, <laughs> battle with. But it's that you can't fulfill a a psychological need with a physiological one but don't we do it all the time because it's so easy <laughs> it seems like it works at the time for, for a minute <laughs> right afterwards like, and then we need more <laughs> I know I know yeah um so 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 how are you gonna like keep keep track of or um record any things that you investigate yeah so you've thought this through more than I have <laughs> you're asking the right questions you know I think so I as a writer I journal every morning um, and so I think what I'll do is keep track of myself when I journal and just think you know I I think uh, like you were talking about with food I think I'll I might feel really proud of myself if I'm finding other alternatives and so I think that's what I'll I'll focus on is uh, little triumphs that might be oh, look, I didn't buy something. I found another way of getting what I need, or I realized I didn't need it at all. Uh, so I think I'll record that way over the next two months. I'll do it starting today. <laughs> and Yay. I think, I suspect, as you were sort of saying about emotional eating, I might also, I suspect I might also have some um, emotional discoveries along the way about why I buy certain things. So maybe that there'll be some investigation there too. I am so excited. Would we be able to have a further conversation like in the two months? Love and, it. Um, yeah, you can tell me about your discoveries and your, you'll be like this Zen master now. You'd be like, Alison, I've taken my meditation to a new level. <laughs> I don't need anything anymore. Everything I need is within me. <laughs> I feel like this exists. It probably already exists, but I feel like we could have um, 
a little group, you know, a little solutions group, the no buyers group or something that yeah. we help each other. I mean, I just love some of your insights around food. Like it doesn't have to be a meal. It can be, you know, um, you don't have to have that constraint. So um, there was um, one of the communities I met with on the Gulf Coast, one of these historically African-American communities had something like that it was the women in the community and now I've lost the name of it, but they would just meet in each other's houses and share basic, basic tips on how to do things, skills that they had. And part of that was because in the culture of segregation in the US, uh, black people were so constrained from shopping and buying things. They had to really get a lot of what they needed themselves if they didn't want to sort of suffer the humiliations of segregation. and. I just loved that. Um, as a privileged person, of course, I don't have the same constraints, but as a way of just unplugging a little bit from our economy, it, it feels like it could be very empowering. Yeah, I do love that idea. Well, maybe we can talk more when when you have all your, your insights and um, yeah, that would be fantastic. Alison, I have so enjoyed my time with you today. It's been amazing. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would just like to talk about sort of briefly? I don't think so. I just had a, such a delightful conversation with you too. I really admire your podcast and all that you're doing and all the thoughtfulness you bring and the wide range. I love that there's um, sort of environmental components, emotional components to the journey. It's just, it's, it's a beautiful thing. So congratulations. So nice. Thank you. <laughs> That's so lovely. Where can people connect with you, Alison, and find out more? Yep. So it's easy to find me at my website, which is Alison Cobb, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-C-O-B-B dot net. Perfect. Thank you so much. Okay, Alison. Thank you. Ah, what an amazing human being. I love this deep and humble curiosity that Alison has, this desire to know and share and know some more. It's it's actually really helped me to change the way that I see things. I feel before, before I had like a very surface level interaction with my possessions. So Take a bag of crisps, for example, before I would just get the crisps, open the bag, eat them, put them in the bin. Mm, nice little snack break. I didn't think more about it. Now, after reading Alison's book and having so many threads uncovered and where she shows how so many things are interconnected, I'm starting to see that bag of crisps and the history behind it and how it gets manufactured. I literally ate a bag of crisps the other day and thought about the oil that came from the ground that was pumped up deep from the depths of the earth that was then heated and pressurized and cooled with water into this plastic polymer and then uh, printed with whatever marketing, branding, logos, filled with the crisps that were made from potatoes that came from the ground and salt from the sea or rocks. I don't know where the salt came from. And all of that packaged and driven to a warehouse and then driven to a supermarket. And then I, in my car, drive to a supermarket to buy them, bring them back to my house and eat them. And it takes me 
two minutes maximum to eat them. And then I throw that pack of crisps away because the packaging is non-recyclable and it lasts forever. It goes to a landmine or landmine, landfill, and lasts forever. That few moments of satisfaction, which I have completely forgotten about now, is existing on the planet forever. And not only that, I'm now starting to think about the intention behind the people that made those decisions to make the crisps, which is that they want profit. They don't care about me and my my snack deliciousness or the health of myself or the health of other people, the health of the planet. They just care about making money. And it's actually at any cost, human, animal, planet, any cost, they don't care. And to be honest, it's quite overwhelming (laughs) when you start thinking about it. I can see why Alison says, you know, don't give up, still have hope, and you must find a joy in in this uh, midst of despair. Because when you start thinking about it, you think, oh, oh, geez, I, I almost wish I didn't know. Because there is a burden of knowledge that when you know, you can't unknow. And now you have to do something or suffer the consequences of not doing the thing, but thinking you should do it and then just feeling bad about it. So I was pleased when Alison said it's important to not beat yourself up and feel guilty about using single-use plastic, but try and make smart choices where you can and use your effort and energy to to lobby where it matters with the producers and having that extended producer responsibility. The other thing I wanted to mention quickly is I put a photo, um, a link to the photo of the Sheb bird on the show notes. And I do recommend you check it out. It's just horrific. That bird, baby bird, chick is packed with plastic, hundreds of bits of plastic. And the caption is something like, how do you starve when you've got a full belly? And there was another passage in the book um, with the albatross. This time it's uh, adult albatross feeding the baby. And the albatross is trying to regurgitate the food. And it's like trying to bring it up, but is unable to. And it's unable to because because it's got a toothbrush stuck in its throat and that's stopping the food from being regurgitated. And you just think, oh gosh, that baby's going to go hungry and die. And I use a toothbrush and you know what? I didn't intend, I don't think any of us intended to cause so much suffering with the things that are produced and the things that we buy, but we really have it's undeniable. We really have. And now we need to do something about it. Anyway, I would love to hear your thoughts about this episode. Was there anything that surprised you? Um, Has it helped you change the way that you see plastic products? Do let me know. I'd love to continue this conversation on social media. You can find me on Instagram at alison.untethered. Facebook, This Sustainable Life Untethered, and Twitter, Ali Untethered. 
Uh, all these links will be in the show notes. Um, but yeah, really, really interesting episode. Amazing food for thought. Do check out Alison's book. It is beautiful. She writes so beautifully, um, as well as being so educational and moving and entertaining. So yeah, check it out. Again, link on the show notes or just Google Alison Cobb. And I thank you so much for listening and sharing this time with me today. And I hope you have a really wonderful rest of your day.